0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books, ne- New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elena McGrath, a host of the channel. With us today is Jamie Heilman, Associate Professor of History at the University of Alberta. She is co-author with Manuel Yamocha Mitma of the book Now Peru is Mine, a testimonial biography of a campesino activist whose life and work spanned much of the 20th century. This book was published by Duke in 2016. Jamie Heilman, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the
1: show. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: So, um, I would like you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and how you came to write this
1: book. Sure. So, uh, I'm from Alberta, and I have the amazing fortune of uh, working at in the same place that I grew up and did my undergraduate degree. Um, and so, when I started university, I was really interested in Chinese history but I did not speak Mandarin, um, uh, but I was learning Spanish, and I, um, in my first Latin American history class, came across, um, learned about the Shining Path Rebellion in Peru, Maoist insurrection, and so that led to, um, eventually, to graduate school, and my first book, my dissertation and first book, which was on um, essentially a prehistory of the Shining Path in Peru, um, and so that's sort of where my that's sort of led up to um, coming across Yomocha and beginning that the project that ultimately became this book.
0: That's great. And so um, at what point did you, did you sort of see Yomocha as a figure that you needed to spend more time with or that you wanted
1: others to spend more time with? Sure. So, um, It's sort of very clear. My first meeting with this um, amazing man actually happened in the archive and it was not with him in person, but rather with a letter he'd written in, I think, 1965. So I was just going through um, documents about Ayacucho Peru's political history in the 1960s, these um, local petitions and documents. And I found just this petition that the language of it just blew me away. Um, It was... uh, you know, it was I it, sort of the the phrase that he kept repeating in this in this um, letter, this petition was "enough is enough." Like, um, campesinos have suffered, people have suffered in Peru since the time the Spaniards arrived, um, and I was just like, "Who is this person?" <laughs> and so, the more I researched, you know, I kept coming across references to Manuel moja I kept coming across references to this dangerous communist in our midst um, sort of letters written mostly in the the fifties and sixties a few into the early 1970s. And then just in chatting with um, some Peruvian friends of mine, this was the time of uh, when Peru was in the midst of doing the work of the the truth and reconciliation commission. And so I had some friends who were actually um, working for the truth commission. And one of those friends, a guy named Ivan Caro um, who's also a historian, um, Peruvian, we were just chatting one day and I, I mentioned Manuel Yamoha finding him in the archive and asked Ivan if he um, knew anything about Yamoha and he's like, of course I do, I interviewed him. I was like, what? <laughs> um, and so it turned out that Ivan had done an interview with Yamoha for the, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Ivan also told me when I asked that uh, Yomocha had died. Um, And so while I was able to get my hands on the um, transcript of the the truth and reconciliation or the CBR's interview with Yomocha, I just assumed that Yomocha was dead. (laughs) Um, And a number of other people told me the same thing that he had died shortly after his um, interview with the CBR, the the truth and reconciliation commission in 2002. Um, And so I was like, Ugh, what a disappointment, but I didn't really ask any more questions, but I col- continued to collect, um, sort of making a mental note of um, or writing down, you know, when I came across a reference to Yamocha in the archives or in periodicals, um, there was a really rich um, uh, leftist um periodicals on uh, newspapers in Peru and, and Yamocha would write frequently. And so I always sort of made notes of where those things were thinking that, you know, even though he was dead, uh, possibly I could write, um, something about him, maybe a book, maybe an article, something. And the way it turned out was that I, uh, uh, I, you know, in filling out my, um, Web page for my university, um, you know, just like who I am and what future projects I might have. I just happened to list a, a biography of Manuel Yamaha, um as something that I might pursue. Um, and then, in a sort of short turn of a really eventful week, Um, I received two emails. One was from Yomocha's daughter, Maria, saying, this is my dad, Um, who are you? (laughs) And another from uh, another friend of mine, uh, a guy named Ricardo Caro, with whom I would talked about Yomocha a lot, and we'd always sort of lamented the fact that he was dead um, and that we weren't able to talk to him. And Ricardo sent me this email saying, he's alive. I just came back from visiting with him. And so things um, got rolling very quickly from there. That was 2010. So eight years after assuming that he was dead, um, it turned out he was very much alive. Um, and that really got this, this new project going in a, in a very quick way.
0: That's that's so fantastic, and what a fortuitous
1: week you had. So whenever uh, I talk to students or people about the book, I'm always like, I didn't inquire further. If I have one takeaway lesson, it's inquire further. <laughs> like, don't take anything for granted. Sometimes don't yeah. do incorrect information. That's a
0: that's fantastic. Um, so one of the one of the beautiful things about the book is how how it allows um, English language readers to really see Yamoha's voice mm-hmm. um, and to read his words and and to kind of get the power of his um, his style of communication. And so at what point did you decide you were going to co-write a book or uh, presumably after you realized he was alive and that was a possibility, <laughs> but what made this, this particular style
1: of book appealing to you? So, I mean, the, the thing about yomoha that's, you know, um, for those who had the, you know, the amazing fortune to meet him, this man is was just a consummate storyteller. Um, I've never had easier oral history interviews in my life because basically all I had to do was ask one question and hit record and he would talk for hours with, you know, um, you've read the book, these incredibly rich, often hilarious stories, um, quite touching stories, um, but very much he already had a book. Written in his head, <laughs> um, and he had tried a few times to to get it down on paper, but you know life is hard, um, and when you just have a, a typewriter, when you um, he'd lost uh, much of his ability to see, sort of just the circumstances of life had never really allowed him to to put down all of these stories on paper, and so very quickly after our, um, we had our first um, conversation. it it was very clear that there was enough material there for a book and that it should be a book that would really, you know, bring, have his voice at the forefront um, precisely because his stories um, and his, his history was so amazing. And the way that he crafted it with these, you know, basically these rich anecdotes um, was so, you know, gripping Um, that said, the process of figuring out how to best present this to a readership was not actually obvious from the start um i had i had started out thinking that the best way to showcase his story and to share it with the world was by doing um a really unmediated text one in which my interventions as an author were quite limited, um, and so I experimented with with a format that that really kept my questions in and relegated um, introductions and historical context to postscripts at the end of chapters or lengthy footnotes. And it was the sort of really what I thought was like cutting edge presentation really modeled along the lines of what, um, my advisor, probably uh, perhaps your advisor, Florence a. Mallon had done with her book, um, uh, with a solde uh, Reuke, um, which, you know, kept the questions in and was really quite transparent uh, something Lynn Stephen had done, um, with the, the book. Oh, I can't remember the, the narrator's name. I'm sorry. Um, hear my voice or Maria Tula. I think her name is Maria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I did, I did this whole first draft of this book in this way, using these amazing stories. And I had all this archival stuff, too, which I wanted in there to help their reader along. But I I didn't want to sort of take away from Yumoho's voice. And so I, I wrote a draft of it. And I shared it with um, my closest intellectual colleague, who's also my best friend, um, a historian named Gladys McCormick. Um, we went to school together, and she's very much my sounding board, as I am hers for writing. And, you know, she's very knowledgeable about 20th century Peru, Peruvian history. But she's a Mexicanist. Um, and she, she read it and she said, Jamie, this book is totally inaccessible. <laughs> if your goal is to present Imoja's story to the world as, as he very much wanted it presented, she's like, you need a format that, that helps your readers along more. She's like, this is too weird. <laughs> it's too experimental. And ultimately, it's too inaccessible um and I mean, that was hard to hear <laughs> you know having a, a whole first draft of the book um and my plan was to take a, a sort of a polished first draft back to you and how to share. um that was hard to hear but she was completely right um and so i ended up taking a step back um and you know thinking maybe a more traditional biography would be appropriate but i knew that that wasn't right either because you know Yomo wanted his stories out, um, I wanted his stories out, and so basically what I quickly settled upon was sort of the compromise format of this book. A book that very much puts his life stories front and center, but that is also somewhat more traditional in that my questions don't appear. I very much contextualize each of his um anecdotes uh, um historically. I weave in what was happening in Peru at this time, to essentially uh, provide readers who might not be super familiar with 20th century Peruvian history the kind of help that they would need, so that they wouldn't be wouldn't be distracted by what they didn't know. Um, and therefore, you know, this more traditional format was a way of essentially allowing Imoja's stories to to speak for themselves by having my context essentially amplify it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, as as someone who's assigned this book to students this past uh, spring term, I have to say, I think you do a very uh, impressive job of weaving in a lot of different history. The Shining Path is not an easy thing to teach, as I'm sure you know. Um, and, um, you know, Yamoha's particular place within the 20th century is is a complicated thing. But I think um, the way that you have structured the book has really does allow a number of different complex issues to be fairly accessible to the reader and um, and yeah, I think it's a it's a remarkable uh, example of that. Um, so one of the things that I did want to talk to you about is uh, the uses that you think this book has pedagogically because I know that my students responded really they were really excited by the concept of organic intellectual. this was sort of their, introduction to that concept, um, although it's obviously not one that you have in, uh, <laughs> invented. Um, but I also was struck by the idea that um, Yamojo was someone that Peruvian students would seek out as a sort of, um, as a person to interview as part of their education and trying to understand what had happened in the 20th century. Do, so did he see himself as participating in a kind of pedagogical process with this book?
1: I'm I'm pausing here because I'm, I'm 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 thinking. Um, he he would see it. He, he saw it less as um, sort of pedagogy for the limited university world. I mean, not that I mean, that's a huge world, but he was thinking broader. I mean, he wanted people everywhere, you know, in universities but also outside universities, to understand what had happened in Peru since the time of the Inca, basically, um, and certainly with the the Spanish conquest. And so, you know, when I first proposed writing a book with him, I thought it was going to be like a complex negotiation, but he was just like, right away, he was like, absolutely, let's do it. Like, let's get to it. Like, we have no time to waste. Like, and we then proceeded to record like a five-hour interview. Um, And so he very much was keen to get um, his story out to anyone and everyone who would listen. Um, the, certainly a, a high point, or sort of something that he was very proud of um, in his life. I mean he had you know, a lot to be proud of. but he was certainly, you know, very proud, with, with good reason, of all the opportunities he had had to share his, his intellectual work with. Students of all sorts, whether that was university students who would, um, you know, make the, the trip um, from uh, the university in uh, essentially the Ayacucho city, Aymanga, um, all the way to his um, home in a place called Concepcion, but also those times that he was able to speak in front of university students in, in Lima. Um, I think the high point of his life as uh, an activist, as Uh, a teacher came in 1965. He was invited um, on a set of international trips. So he uh, went to Cuba and spoke um, at this international gathering of uh, of leftists. Uh, He went to China and and learned a lot. He went to the Soviet Union and really sort of, he saw these as as opportunities uh, to tell the world about what was going on in Peru. And so as we spoke about the book, he very much talked about the, um, um, essential task we had he and I had of getting his story down and getting it out and getting it out as quickly as possible um he had he had a very urgent timeline for this book um he was he was very aware that he was old uh, he was already in his 90s he was very aware that um you know that he had a limited number of years left uh, in life. He'd already suffered one stroke uh, several years before, and he was acutely conscious of the fact that he was losing his memory. Um, he would get so heartbreakingly frustrated at himself during his interviews. I mean he told these he told these stories that you know had this incredible you know depth of information. Just the most incredible interviews I've I've ever had the privilege of, of listening to and, and, and conducting. Um, just with the the depth and the detail, um, but he would get frustrated when he couldn't remember a year, couldn't remember a person's name. Um, you know, sometimes he joked that he thought he'd been um, subjected to spells, to witchcraft, um, that something had you know made him lo- lose his memory. And so he just had this real desire to get things done as quickly as as possible. And so in that, I think he he wanted to to share his story as. You know, as a teacher, but thinking of students both inside and outside the university.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, one of the things that struck me as I was reading it, and this this comes across in the title and in the very beginning of the book, is just the the scope of Yomocha's ambition, as saying, "Now Peru is mine. I will someday be president." These sorts of things. And I was wondering if you if you chose the title, or um, if um, if that was something that he collaborated on, or how. How you came to to sort of foreground yeah, that? I mean, or if it's just oh, yeah, irrepressible.
1: I did case. choose the title. I mean, to me, it was just so sort of classic of the kind of statements he would make, and sort of the the the, the story behind that. Now, Peru's mind is that he says that as a very young man when he sort of sort of tricked the military into conscripting him, and he rubs his hands together gleefully, thinking that the path to the presidency is his. Um, and it's kind of funny because as I wrote. Uh, first draft and shared it with some colleagues, a few said to me, you know, Gladys and the, uh, another colleague said, he he sounds kind of arrogant. And I thought, oh my God, that is so not him. I mean, he was the most, um, he's very, he was very short. He was very um, easygoing. Um, his daughter, Maria, Maria, described him as sort of very humble, actually kind of quiet and so, you know, on the one end, you have this guy saying, now nah, Peru is mine, and, you know, comparing himself at times to Jesus. And the way that I had to, to work to, to help the reader understand that he wasn't just some like raging egotist was instead to sort of show that he's somebody who Peruvians had essentially forgotten about. Um, one of the most revealing moments for me. Um, in terms of situating him and and sort of the the tragedy of his own life and the tragedy of the 20th century Peruvian left was I was doing um, an interview with some leaders of the Peruvian Peasant Confederation, which Yomocha had been only the second leader of um in the, the confederation's entire history. It essentially founded in the nineteen twenties, and then it was defunct for for many years. And he was really instrumental in bringing it back to life. So, I mean, without without him, this organization would not have become the sort of huge organization it remains to this day in Peru. And so, I was having this interview with these leaders of the the CCP, the Peruvian Peasant Confederation, and I I explained what I was doing with this project and the the folks whom I was interviewing, which included at that moment the the leader and essentially the, the vice president of the the CCP, the Peasant Confederation, they had no idea who I was talking about. Um, they had never heard of Yomoha. And it it really struck me um at that point that the, the way to understand how Yomoha um characterized himself in these sometimes seemingly egotistical statements were very much a, a corrective um, to, to sort of bring back and, and amplify the work that he had done that had for, you know, by by both design and accident, been essentially uh, erased from, or not erased, but minimized in um, sort of the narrative of proving history and, and certainly historiography. But the title itself um, was one that um, I came up with when I suggested it to him, he laughed and he thought that, that was great.
0: I'm, I'm happy to hear that. It, it strikes me also that, um, this kind of, um, his, his ambition or the, the, the concern that this might be arrogance also comes about in a, in a context in which, um, indigenous people in Peru particularly are, are not assumed to have this kind of national scope or this kind of large ambition. And so part of his story is, is that he is so, um, is that he really puts a lie to
1: those sort of stereotypes about indigenous people. For sure. Um, And, you know, I think this was one of the things that was so striking to me about Yomoha from, from the very first encounter with him in the the archive when it was Yomoha on paper was that, you know, I had, the framework of proving history in my head that I'd learned from from books written by, you know, really fabulous historians that said, and, and social scientists that said, you know, in Peru, the Kampasino identity or the peasant identity is at the forefront because the, the severity of racism in Peru means that indigenous identity among Quechua peoples like Yamaha um, has just been, you know, consciously re- repressed and silenced as a way of allowing, sort of, a, a conscious choice in many ways by peasants to reject indigenous identity, um, uh, as a way of, you know, integrating themselves into uh, a, a nation state in which anti-indigenous racism was so virulent and so pressing, and you know, for the most part, there's that that the sort of that explanatory line is mostly correct. Um, But then here was Yomocha in the 1960s talking about colonialism and talking about being proudly indigenous um, and talking about being, um, you know, in his words, like a a fierce son of the Indian race, while also at the same time using this language of campesino. Um, And he was he was unusual in that respect. Um, And. very innovative and you know what you've suggested here is is exactly right i mean in peru there was a certain life course expected for peasants from indigenous backgrounds and that was not to be president that was not even to be uh, a priest you know one of the first things he wanted to do was to to be a catholic priest and he went and tried to you know get himself um, in, uh, essentially in training and he was dismissed um, precisely because it was like, you're, you're an indigenous peasant. Like, well, what are you doing? Was sort of the reaction that he received. And so very much him saying, now Peru is mine, making these grand plans was him saying, you know, as an indigenous peasant, I know Peru better than the most who aren't. Um, and I, you know, this is who I am is an asset. Um, and it's something To be proud of, and you know, he he never silenced who he was, um, and he never embraced a strictly class-based identity, but he also never rejected that class-based identity. I mean, he very much saw himself as a campesino, but the way that he defined campesino was as um, somebody of Quechua origins, Um, and those Quechua origins. Linking back to um, the, the time of the Inca, um, and that did not sit well with a lot of the leftists of the 1970s, who thought that indigenous identity was retrograde, was um, uh, uh, that race itself was this tool to divide the working class, and that. Um, Any focus on indigenous identity just worked to the benefit of the oppressors um, and that we had to think in strictly Marxist, strictly classist terms. And he refused. um, And he he caught a lot of grief for that. Um, One document that I found was a criticism of him. Written by uh someone in the Shining Path. It wasn't clear who wrote it. And they dismissed him as that guy with the Incaic ideas, like, let just you know, he's he's irrelevant. He's, you know, lost in this sort of um great Inca vision and only wants to talk about, you know, the Inca past. And it was it was a struggle for him to um to maintain that that identity in it in its full um complexity. And even in his own family. Um, You know, he had um, a complex family relationship with his brothers and sisters, and one of his sisters um, in particular, um, you know, refused to think of herself as Indigenous, and they got into really harsh arguments about whether or not their family was Indigenous or not.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: And that's um, that's such an interesting story for thinking about the ways that um, that these identities function together and on a very intimate scale. Um, his story is so so good for showing that. Um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about his relationship to The Shining Path, because I know it, it comes up again and again in both your research into his actions and also his life course. I mean, his life is affected by the accusations um, that, that fly at him kind of from both sides. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what his story tells us about The
1: Shining Path and also his relationship to it. Sure. So, you know, I'll start with, I'll start with what we assumed about Yamaha, um, which is that um, sort of the first book that came out about the shining path that really cracked open what this organization, this party was, was a very famous book by, um, an an outstanding book um, in almost every respect by a journalist named Gustavo Goriti. He was, or yeah, I mean, at the time he was a journalist for Peru's major news magazine, a news magazine called Caretas. um, And he had done some of the earliest reporting um, on what was happening in Peru's Andean regions, um, you know, the civil war broke out in 1980. And for the most part, it was confined in those early months and, and early years to that indigenous rural regions um, in the, the Highland Sierra. And so Lima, which was the center of power, um, the coast wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was going on, to the suffering that was already taking place. And Goriti was, you know, a Lima journalist but he went. Um, he went to Ayacucho. He was really instrumental in getting the country, and to and extent, the world to to pay attention to you know the incredible violence that was being unleashed both by the Shining Path and the very devastating um, state counterinsurgency. And so he publishes this book in 1991 or 1992 called Sendero, um, and it was just um, it was just a pathbreaking book. It helped us understand really for the first time in a great deal of clarity what the shining path was about. Um, and he talks about Yomocha, um, in a single sentence in the book. And he said in that book, he said that, um, there had been a meeting in the home, in the Ayacucho home of shining path activist, Manuel Yomocha. Um, and a lot of people, if they had heard of Yomocha, back to that line. Um, that's where they were introduced to Yamocha. I thought Yamocha had been um, in Shining Path because of that line. Um, and also because Yamocha had certainly been very closely affiliated with the Maoist side of the Peruvian left since the 1960s. Um, so, so there's that one part of the story, sort of that one line in, in Goriti's book. Now, where that line came from hard to know. I've not interviewed Goriti, But, you know, Manuel Yamoja, the reason that he was able to, to rise to such prominence so quickly in the 1960s was because he worked very, very closely with a guy named Saturnino Paredes. Um, and Paredes was essentially the, the head of Peru's Maoists. Um, when Peru's left split into Stalinist and Maoist factions in the 19 uh, early 1960s, Paredes was essentially the, the the lead Maoist, and he and Yamoha worked very closely together. Um, and so, there's no question that Yamoha agreed with Maoism. That Yamoha was inspired by Maoism. That Yamoha worked very, very closely with Maoists. Um, he went to China in 1965 um did a, a a tour um he would have stayed for longer um had he not um <clears throat> fallen very ill but Yamoha himself um never explicitly joined the maoist peruvian political party um at least as not so far as i can tell um we talked about he and i talked about this over and over again it was sort of the one area of his life where his stories were always kind of frustratingly vague um, in that the most he would ever say was that he he sympathized with Maoism, but they didn't give it his whole heart. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it's his story. And so I chose to to sort of try to present that without saying, you know, without presuming that he was more involved than he said he was. So certainly we can say he worked with Maoist. He sympathized with Maoist. um, He went to China and he very much collaborated with Maoist, but he never, at least in our stories um, or in our interviews, he he never went so far as to say, I'm a Maoist. Um, And certainly nothing nothing he wrote um, did he ever explicitly say, I'm a Maoist. Nonetheless, in Peru, to this day, <laughs> you say Mao, or Maoism, or work with Maoist, and you're immediately assumed to be a member of Shining Path. And so, when the Shining Path's first attacks um, in Peru, of uh, its first um, uprising, or its sort of first efforts began, Yomoko um, was very quickly assumed to be part of those attacks um, and those efforts. The additional, there are two additional complicating factors. Um, he knew the founder of Shining Path, um, Abamea Guzman. They had met, they had tried to work together. Um, it, it didn't really last. Guzman was not particularly interested in hearing all of Yomocha's stories and following all of his advice. Um, but that sort of momentary affiliation between the two men, that momentary collaboration, Um, particularly in relation to to one Hacienda that Yomocha had long fought against, that was enough to essentially link Yomocha with Shining Path in the minds of authorities and certainly in the minds of his enemies. Um, And so Yomocha was very quickly accused of being um, a mastermind of Shining Path, even though he was um, no such thing. And that those accusations of um, terrorism, essentially, I mean, he was the word "terrorist" was used against him um, very explicitly by his enemies, um, accusing him of being um, part of Shining Path, of carrying out terrorist violence. Those accusations forced him to flee from his home, flee from Ayacucho, um, and to live essentially in hiding for twenty years in Lima um, as an internal refugee, uh, along with. Um, hundreds of thousands of other Peruvians living as internal refugees. So that's one uh, other component of the story of how Shining Path and Yomocha's stories intersect. The third and and ultimately most devastating um, connection between Yomocha and Shining Path involve his children. Um, His oldest son was accused of being in Shining Path and was imprisoned. Um, for this. um, And he was actually released just days before uh, a terrible massacre of Shining Path activists occurred um, in the particular jail in which he was held. His um, oldest daughter was likewise accused of being in Shining Path, um, uh, was likewise imprisoned. His um, second oldest daughter was accused. Um, uh, She was interrogated. She was not, to my knowledge, um, imprisoned. Uh, And his youngest daughter was likewise forced to um, flee from Ayacucho with an assumed identity um, to to live in safety in Lima. But it's the story of his youngest son, um, a young man named Herbert, uh, where this question of affiliation with Shining Path um, was most devastating. One of Shining Path's first and most prominent attacks, um, armed uh, actions, was on an hacienda called Ayrabamba, um, which was uh, an hacienda, Airabamba that had had long been in conflict with Yemoja's home community of Concepcion. Um, and Herbert, as um, Yemoja's youngest son, was very much sort of in his following in his dad's footsteps. He was very much committed to to social justice. He was very much committed to doing all he could to fight against injustice. He was very much committed to to doing the kind of work his dad had. And Albert participated in that attack on Airabamba. Um that that that's clear. Um whether or not he was actively affiliated with Shining Path is not 100% clear um, he probably was um, that the book doesn't sort of explicitly go there, although it hints at it. And that's all we can do. You know, I don't have definitive proof that that was in shining path. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, he, he certainly worked with the shining path. Um, and because of his participation in that attack, um, he was uh, flagged um, in the minds of local authorities as being involved in Shining Path. And, and quite tragically, he was also flagged um, within Yamocha's own family by Yamocha's brother, so Herbert's uncle. So Herbert's uncle um, essentially snitched on Herbert, uh, revealed uh, to the authorities where Herbert was, stated that he was involved, and led the authorities to um, his nephew, to Yamaha's son. So Yamaha's son was seized by the authorities. He was taken um, from Yamaha's uh, house um, and he was placed under arrest. He was placed under arrest um, and put in one jail, then with some Shining Path activists, transferred later to another jail with some Shining Path activists. Um, From that jail, he wrote some some really beautiful letters and and petitions. Um, He was an incredible guy, a lot like his dad. Um, And then... Shining Path activists um, attacked that jail where Albert was held, with the goal of freeing um, the Shining Path militants who were in, imprisoned in that jail. Um, there were others imprisoned in, in that jail, so it wasn't just Shining Path activists. But Albert was was one of the people in that jail when the Shining Path attacked, and that's that's essentially what Albert's story ends. We we don't know what happened to him. It's possible that he was killed by the police in the shootout um, that happened around that um, jailbreak. It's possible that he um, uh, escaped from that jail and then lost his life elsewhere. We simply don't know. Um, so he, uh, Erbrecht disappeared. Um, and that disappearance, that the fact that to this day, the family doesn't know what happened to Erbrecht, that was really the the central tragedy of Manuel Yamaha's life, and that's a tragedy that is sort of fundamentally um, linked in, in, in complicated ways to uh, the Shining Paths War and the state counterinsurgency against that war.
0: It's a really tragic story and one that is, um, you know, not, not unfortunately uh, unique in the history of Peru. Um, what, is, what is maybe the most... Um, unique about Yomocha and and Edbert's story is, is how many things Yomocha was really central to how many important national events in in the late 20th century. Um, But that this sort of relationship between trying to participate in movements that might help your community might help your family or might help the nation and, um, and the tension between those and the, uh, and the escalation of violence that was happening in that time and place um, just the, the sort of silence in Edbert's story particularly. is So it's such a, speaks, um, I think, huge amounts to the tragedy of what was happening in Peru at the time.
1: Sure. And I should add that, you know, when Yomocha and I spoke about um, Shining Path and spoke about Guzman, Yomocha was very clear that while Guzman and Shining Path might've had some good ideas at the start about, you know, revolution and, and changing Peru, that, that their methods were something that he absolutely could not agree with. Um, you know, Yomoha in our interviews was, was adamant that the Shining Path strategy of essentially killing peasant leaders <laughs> um, and killing those with whom it disagreed was appalling um, and something that he would never, ever condone. He was also very explicit about the fact that he had never held a gun. Um, sometimes he, he, he laughed when he would tell this story about like, oh man, if I'd only picked up a machine gun at an earlier point in my life, like who knows what amazing things might've happened. Um, but he was very clear that he had never been involved in, in fighting. Um, and he was also very explicit in the fact that he, he rejected the, the extreme violence of the Shining Path. At the same time that he was also extraordinarily critical of the state's counterinsurgency. Um, you know, often the way things worked out in Peru is that you were sort of the sort of framework of you're with us or against us would would hold that if you were criticizing the state's counterinsurgency, that must mean you were an apologist for the Shining Path or a supporter of the Shining Path, and and Yamaha was was quite frankly, you know, you know, gave lie to that that incorrect um, uh, assertion. You know, he was you know ready and, and willing to to denounce. Both the Shining Path's violence, but also the the horrors of the state's counterinsurgency.
0: His, his story is such an important addition to um, and sort of corrective to the way many people think about or the way um, the story could be told about the Shining Path. As um, yeah, well, so I I I've, I guess one one last major question for you, which is just what advice would you have to someone who might want to take on a project like this in the future? You, you start off with the advice, uh, don't assume someone is dead <laughs> and maybe your second bit of advice would be pick an amazing subject. But,
1: <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I would say that, you know, I took heart from Yomoha's amazing determination. I mean, this book faced, so many obstacles um the the most tragic obstacle was know, one of the earliest and that you know when I when I finally was informed that he was alive and you know went to Peru and and met him and we had our first interviews and sort of we made this plan for this book we spent uh, a couple of days together recording 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 and just getting started just getting to know each other I left Concepcion, Uh, I left his home community, went back to Ayacucho to spend a little bit more time in the archives. And about a week after our first interviews were over, I I got a phone call um, from his daughter. Well, actually, no, the phone call was from my friend Ricardo. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, this is going to have to be erased because I can't remember who phoned me. Somebody phoned me um, and told me that just out of nowhere, Yomocha's just beloved wife, this really cool, Um, um, super strong woman. Her name was Daniel Esther. She had died. Um, She had an aneurysm that no one saw coming. Um, She was 10 years younger than Yamaha, way healthier, way more energetic. Um, You just never would have guessed um, that in the, in that couple that she would be the first to go. And so tragedy struck. And this was, this was just not the moment to do more interviews. Um, I, you know, I'm, I sort of always tell my students, my grad students, like, compassion and humanity matters way more than our work as historians. Like, that is what you prioritize in an interview. Um, That is what you prioritize in a project, being compassionate and humane. And the compassionate and humane thing to do at that point in time was not to try to get more interview materials. It was to, you know, provide what comfort I could to the family and also respect that you know, we didn't have, as a fan, sort of me and the, the family, we, the, we didn't have a, a strong relationship at that point. And the thing to do really was to simply allow the family to grieve. Um, and yet, in my continuing correspondence with, um, you know, Yomojo didn't have email, but his daughter, Maria, who lives in Lima, she certainly did, you know, he wanted this project to continue. Um, and so finding ways to keep going, if that's what the person you're working with wants was essential uh, and for this project the way that we found forward when when i couldn't stay in peru indefinitely i had um i had my family i had my, my job I, I i couldn't stay um uh, uh in peru for certain months on end um was to to hire a research assistant this was on um, my friend um and and um, Long-time um, research assistant, a woman named Alicia Carrasco. We'd worked together before. She had met Yamocha um, with me. You know, I, I I hired her to continue interviewing Yamocha with interview questions that I emailed her from Canada. Um, and I I felt horrible about this methodology. Like the anthropologist in me just screamed that this was absolutely not the way to do oral history interviews, like oral history interviews by proxy just struck me as completely unacceptable. But there was Yamaha saying, we've got to get this done. I'm old. I'm losing my memory. I'm not going to remember. I want to talk. I want to get these stories recorded. And so, you know, I chose to to go with that um, and to use this utterly imperfect incredibly problematic methodology of oral history by proxy. Um, And Alicia, you know, she's not a historian. She's a social worker. Um, And she would, you know, in the interviews, she would just read my interview questions one by one and let Yamocha talk. I mean, these were not sort of the kind of interviews that I would, you know, celebrate. You know, this is not a methodology that I would recommend. And yet this was what Yamocha wanted. And this ultimately was what worked. Um, ironically, I think I got so much from those interviews. And Alicia also did amazing work in interviewing Yamaha's siblings, essentially crossing Peru to find different members of his family, different sort of colleagues, friends, people who knew him, interviewing them again, all with these interview questions that I emailed. Um, and then she would send back the, the transcripts over Dropbox and I would she would do a first draft of transcribing. I would retranscribe and then send follow up questions. And what that meant was that by the time I came back um, to Peru uh, the following summer to to meet with Yomoja again, we could just hit the ground like four thousand kilometers ahead of where we had been and take up essentially all of these questions once again. I already had a draft of the book um, that I'd translated into Spanish, and we basically re-recorded he and I all of those stories because he wanted to share them again. Um and so all this time that I'd been feeling just horrible about this methodology that seemed so imperfect, that seemed so clunky and problematic and so far from ideal, that ended up being what worked for us. Um and, you know, I, I sort of came to the conclusion from from things the told me that, you know, Imperfect and done is better than perfect and never, ever completed. Um, and, you know, Yamaha was elderly um, and he was losing his memory and he didn't ultimately get to see the book published. Um, he died just a few months before the book was was out, but he did get to see the full and complete uh, draft. Um, he saw that draft translated into Spanish. He helped me choose the cover. Um, you know he got to make the dedication and and had we not pursued that you know completely terrible, like not acceptable anthropological method of sort of the perfect oral history interview setup, the project probably would never have been finished and so ultimately, this is my long way of saying my advice is be pragmatic, and things that can seem like real sacrifices for the um, perfection of a project. If they let that project get done and it's done in a way that the person you're working with, your, your co-author, your collaborator likes and is happy with, then you know, don't worry about <laughs> what you presume perfect anthropology or perfect history has to be.
0: That's such um, a helpful way of thinking about taking on projects like this and, and, um, and really foregrounding the idea that he was he was taking control of that process by saying I want to do this now and his his needs were not on on like when you could get back to Peru for example yeah um, well thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and thank you for for the book I, I really enjoyed reading it and my students enjoyed talking about it um,
1: I'm so glad I know Yamaha would be thrilled
0: it's a it's yeah it's a shame that we couldn't um, bring this back to him somehow, but, uh, but it's a, it's a good, wonderful testament to his life as well. So thank you so much. And, um,
1: no, it was great. It was delightful. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: 18- plus.